I want to welcome you to Cary Christian School. My name is Robbie Hinton. I'm the headmaster at Cary Christian School. Uh, we are excited to have you here tonight, and I know y'all are here to see uh, Mr. Pete Hexeth, and uh, we are excited to have Pete here tonight. Uh, I know also some of you have seen his book, and we're going to be taking a look at it tonight, The Battle of the Amer for the American Mind. And uh, I just want to announce that David Goodwin is not going to be with us tonight. We're going to pray for him in just a minute. David had a medical emergency last week, and his doctor said he could not fly. Uh, and so we will miss him tonight for sure. Pete Hexeth comes to us, as you know, from Fox News, and he's a part of uh, Fox and Friends every weekend. He has uh, been doing documentaries and celebrating classical education. Uh, many of you know that David is a graduate of Princeton and of Harvard. Uh, he is a captain in the Army. He has uh, served our country uh, in overseas. He has earned two bronze stars, and uh, we are excited that he is here. Now, the reason I'm excited is because of what this means for our school and for our movement. I've been a part of classical education now for 30 years. 30 years ago, uh, my girlfriend and I, whom I eventually married, uh, we, were, we were touring, we were going on a date, and in our date, we toured George Grant's classical school in Franklin, Tennessee. I know you're thinking, how romantic. Uh, that's what future educators do on dates, and she still married me. Is, and, um, and we were hooked right then. We were like, this is what we want to do with our lives. This is what we are committed to. And so for the next 30 years, we have fell in like we were just breaking rock, and it's been hard work. And that's, one, because building a school is hard. And two, we didn't know what we were doing. We had no idea. Someday, somebody's going to write a true history of classical, Christianity, uh, classical Christian schools. And in that story, it's going to look like the Three Stooges. Because uh, those of us who started these schools, we were preachers. We were college professors. We knew nothing about business. We knew nothing about having employees. We knew really very little about education. All we knew is we had a passion for something, and we wanted to do it. And so there's an old quote that we would always say, if anything's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. And so for years, we did it poorly. It's hard also because, you know, people would show up at your school and you'd put them on a tour and you'd try to explain what we're trying to do here. And they would say, hey, we've been at the school down the street and they were telling us they were going to give our kids a nice little iPad. Or they were going to give them a laptop computer. Or they would talk about their sports facilities and their sports teams. And uh, we would say, hey, you don't need an iPad. We're going to teach your child Latin in third grade. <laughs> you don't need a sports team. Because in ninth grade, we're going to read the Iliad together. It's, it's better. And they would look at us like we were crazy. And so for the last 30 years, we've been doing this thing and trying to build up this movement. And to be honest, it felt like it's going nowhere. And then something happened about three years ago. Pete was doing a, um, a show at a place called Pete's Restaurant. It's not, it's not his restaurant. He doesn't have a side gig of running a restaurant. But he was there, and he, during a commercial break, he sat down with a couple. And uh, they said, we know the answer to the problem you're mentioning. And he said, what's that? And they said, it's classical Christian education. And now, at that moment, Pete could have said, oh, thank you, that's sweet, and went about his business. But here's what's interesting. He didn't do that. 
He started calling the school down the street, Sand Hills Classical School, and they connected him with David Goodwin. And for the, David, as David Goodwin says, Pete has been pestering him, asking him questions about classical Christian education for the last couple of years, saying, let's figure this out, let's talk about this. And it ends up being a book with David Goodwin, the president of our association, and Pete Hegseth. Why I'm excited Pete is here is because Pete... This is something I love dearly. And it's felt like it's going nowhere. And God has gifted you not only with a megaphone and a platform, but the ability to use it and to use it well. And I want to thank you, Pete, for being willing to tell our story. Thank you, Pete. Come on up. I'm going to start us off by reading something from the book on uh, page 250. So it's almost the end of the book. So if you didn't make it this far, <laughs> if you haven't been in class for a while, you're supposed to fake it and pretend you made it all the way to page 250. Second, while this book is about classical Christian schools, it's important to remember that the center of Christian salvation is not education. It's grace. Nobody knows this more than me. My life has been riddled with craters that have required mountains of grace. Without the grace of Jesus Christ and of many others, I would not be here today. I need Christ. Our kids need Christ. We all need Christ. Without a grace-filled life with conviction, children cannot thrive. Something I desperately want for my kids. The church, the school, and the family must be dedicated to the reality of God's grace alone and each child's faith alone. The call to discipleship begins with faith, but this is where classical Christian education picks up. The faith can be made stronger when wisdom and virtue are cultivated. It's beautiful, Pete. That's the heart of what we are at Cary Christian School. Tonight, we're not going to do it. You know, we're, we're going to be direct. We're going to be clear. Uh, we're not going to apologize. We're going to be talking about Christian schools. But as you hear from Pete, I want you to know my heart. We have a love for the church. And this is all about, first of all, our love for Christ. Your children will make four, great, four very important decisions over their lifetime. The first and most important is whether or not they will fall in love with Jesus and whether or not they will follow after him. And on their behalf, you're going to make a second decision where they will go to church. And thirdly, you're going to decide who you're going to raise, uh, raise them with, your spouse. Uh, I hope you've made both of those first two choices, the, the choice on your church and your spouse well. Uh, here's what we're going to talk about. Here's a fourth. It's where, as Pete and David say, it's where they're going to spend 16,000 hours of the most formative years of their life. That's what we're talking about today. It's where they go to school. It's where they learn how to think. Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord, our God, thank you for your goodness to us. And thank you for your blessings. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the joy of educating your children. We do pray for David that he continues to recover. 
And we pray that you give him grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> All right, Pete. This morning, you were at Pete's Diner, yes. I believe, again. Uh, walk me through. I'm going to turn my phone off uh, because I'm going to get in trouble. At Cary Christian School, we don't have our phones on. Smart. So, uh, uh, so tell us this morning, everybody was celebrating, uh, obviously, the State of the Union speech, <laughs> I suspect. Those that could stay awake, yes. Yeah. <laughs> what was the conversation like this morning? Well, it was, it, I, I do often, uh, first of all, thank you all for being here, for spending the night with us. It means the world. And thank you for supporting us. Uh, at Fox in, it's like I could be in New York City or North Carolina, you know, it's, <laughs> it's an easy, easy choice. New York City where they burn down our Christmas tree and beat up our weatherman, you know, it's, thank you for, for what you do here and what the state represents and, and everything here at Cary, Robbie, it means the world. And uh, it, I have one of the best jobs in the world and I get to travel across the country and have breakfast with Americans in small towns all across the country. And never once have I ever had to pull the microphone back from the mouth of someone talking, because technically there are rules on cable about what you can and cannot say. <laughs> and in New York, they always get worried. You know, there's the guy, he's got the beard and the hat. What's he going to say? I'm like, he's going to say something awesome. And, <laughs> and he does, because the, there is such a deep reservoir of goodness and earnestness and honesty and fidelity inside the av average people in America who just want to raise good kids, uh, who love the Lord, who are willing to work hard and raise families and pass on the beliefs that they hold. And they're, they're desperately clinging to a hope that, that this country can be uh, what it was when they grew up and that they can pass that to the next generation. So that's a, so much of what we end up talking about in these diners. But when the cameras aren't on, I get a chance to talk to you know, hundreds of people a morning. Just, hey, what are you thinking about? What are you looking at? What are you talking about? And it it's almost always comes back to first principles of what people really care about in their home and in their family. And in that particular morning, I can't remember exactly how many years ago it was. I, I'm, her name is Amitha. She's now the chairman of the board of Sand Hills Classical Christian School uh, in, uh, in central North Carolina. And she said, I, her, and her kids were there in beautiful uniforms, two little girls. And I had heard of classical Christian education. I was familiar with it. But I wasn't passionate about it, and I didn't have a full sense of what it meant as the, uh, as, as the true answer to the, the poison that is American education today. And she said, you've got to look into it. I, I'm, can I email you? And I'm like, sure, absolutely. And she connected me with David Goodwin. And the rest is history from there. I, I, I really wish David could have been here tonight. It was our intent for him to be here. He has become a mentor and a dear friend of mine. I stand on his shoulders. It is a providential partnership, and I, I see it as no other way. I, I put it this way with David Goodwin. If you've seen Indiana Jones, David Goodwin is Sean Connery. Okay? He's got, he doesn't look like him completely, but he's got the dusty book. You know, he knows, he's on the trail, he's been digging, he's an archaeologist, he, he, he gets it. And I'm Harrison Ford, and I'm just running as fast as I can from the boulder coming down. Because I come at this, like you, with young kids who just a few years ago were in public school in New Jersey. Uh, and you could see it coming down the track. Listen, I, I grew up in public school. I'm sure many of you did. My dad was a public school teacher, gym teacher. He was the whole high school basketball coach. My mom was stayed at home with us. We, and I pridefully said, uh, I want my kids 
to, to go to public school. It's good enough for me, it's good enough for them. I'm a blue collar kid, I want them to be a part of the community, go to the local public school, be salt and light, face the challenges. That was my working assumption. Uh, all the way through. And I think it's a very understandable default for a lot of people considering the experiences and the nostalgia we have for public school. And then you just start to, to look around. And what we talk about in the book in the first couple of chapters is what we describe as the COVID-16-19 moment, which is that moment when COVID came on the scene and the classroom came into your homes on a laptop on Zoom. And suddenly you realize your kids are being taught that America is a racist nation at its foundation and the real founding date is 1619. And CRT sort of stormed onto the scene at that moment and parents started to go, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> this is what my kid is being taught? And soon thereafter, critical gender theory, uh, all the sexuality stuff started, gender pronouns, all of that starts making its way into the classroom. And so the silver lining of COVID was the massive wake-up call that a lot of parents and grandparents had about the set of assumptions that they had about, about education. And where David comes in is he's been this archaeologist. What Robbie said is true. The, the darkest days of American education are not today. As bad as it is, the darkest days were the 1970s because there were zero classical Christian schools in America. Zero. Homeschooling was almost made illegal. They wanted to focus on, on and outlawing it outright. It was dead and buried. The education of our founders was gone, and that's precisely how the progressives wanted it to be. They intentionally snuffed it out, and that's a big part of the story that we can get in tonight. It's a 100-year intentional progressive takeover of the educational pipeline. It was, it was buried, and what folks like Robbie and Kerry Christian and Sand Hills and what they've done in, in, in Idaho and elsewhere, they've revived a lost art of education that stimulated and educated the West for 2,000 years, that educated our founders and gave them the brilliance of critical thinking and free thinking and ability to identify fallacies the way that they could. These were young men. These were 20-somethings, 30-somethings who crafted the most brilliant self-governance document, who, by the way, who never used the word democracy because they were educated about democracy and they intentionally chose a constitutional republic, yet we throw that word around like it's you know, a cheeseburger. I mean, we, because we're not educating kids about the differences in that our founders understood those differences. So as dark and difficult as these days are, what we try to say in the book is, this is both the darkest moment and the brightest moment because of what guys like and gals like Robbie and his wife and others have done pouring themselves into being archaeologists and digging out from underneath the ruins a real education so that my kids and your kids can get the education they deserve. Because I got a progressive education and I didn't even know it. And I got it with Christian parents who were wonderful to me in every single aspect, raised me in the faith, and I went to in a conservative, patriotic, Christian community in suburban Minnesota, where the community was center-right, you know, but every part of my educational experience had been crafted and created by progressives. From the, from the curriculum, to the, 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 the types of courses that we took, to the deconstruction of history, to social studies, to the bell ringing, to seven periods in the day, all of these were inventions of progressives over a 100-year pipeline that led us to the place where I got indoctrinated and I had no idea. 
and I thought I had a great education. And then I went to Princeton and Harvard and it got worse. I got dumber. <laughs> I really, really did. All right, let's talk so, about that. So the point is, uh, you're going to get a lot of pessimism tonight, but we're actually on the precipice of a renaissance because of the work that they've done. And the first step to recovery for any addict is understanding the depth of your problem. <laughs> and that's the first part of this book, is to smack people in the face and say, no, 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 the school you think is okay is definitely not okay. And it's time to, to, to make a different decision. All right, so y'all frame the problem with this word, plasticity. Yeah. And then, so there's this concept, definitions on the board here, y'all have it mentioned several times, and then you talk about that progressive figured this out about kids, that they were malleable, and then they misused it. For sure. So progressives, when they had initially identified what they needed to do to maintain social control, I mean, what they want was control. They realized they had to do one thing in order to capture the plasticity or the malleability of a child's mind. You had to, before they started indoctrinating, they had to remove something. They knew they had to remove it. Uh, and they had to remove it in every possible way. And they wrote openly about it in the New Republic, which is the progressive magazine of the time. John Dewey and others wrote about it. The, what, what's the one thing they needed to remove? God. That was their first target. And, and, and they openly wrote about what chance, this is a, 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 not a direct quote, but pretty close. What chance did the theists, meaning Christians, have with their one hour on Sunday morning and one hour on Wednesday night against 40 hours of atheistic instruction during the week. What chance do they have? So they started their own model schools, um, one of which is called the Gary Plan in Gary, Indiana. And it worked in some ways and worked in other ways. But they tricked parents because David helped with this analogy. He's totally right. Back to the Indiana Jones thing. If you're going to steal... Uh, if you're going to steal the heart of a civilization or a culture or, or a paideia, which we'll get to, if you just pull it off a pressure plate, a precious jewel, the, the cultural alarm bells are going to go off. Parents are going to revolt, like we saw on school boards, and say, no, 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 God's not coming out of the classroom. So if you're going to remove it, you better replace it with a forgery as fast as you can in real time to sort of deceive parents that all is okay. So at first it was, no, we're not removing God. We're going we're gonna to have a pullout period where kids can leave school for religious instruction and then come back to school when their religious instruction is complete. And then when it moved to New York City, they had more of a battle of how to separate it even further. And then what they realized, and it's very crafty, and I say the pledge and sing the national anthem very, very proudly. And it's, a, it's sort of a mind uh, puzzle when you think about it. But they effectively replaced the cross in the Bible with a flag and a pledge. They replaced Christianity with uh, patriotism. And I'm a patriot and I love this country. But that's not enough to sustain who we are when you remove absolute truth, when you remove Jesus Christ, when you remove an understanding of human nature and our sinful nature. Because then you can start to be seduced by ideas that man is perfectible. And if just enough social engineering and just enough of the right education, and you can create a utopian outcome. And when you meet all the characters in this 100-year progressive takeover, to a man and to a woman, they're all atheists, Marxists, and communists. All of them who were, who were dedicated from day one from forming a, a type of education that molded the mind of a kid as early as possible. And they, they discovered that next word we might talk about, which is paideia, which is a lost Greek word. I had no idea what it, I speak no Greek. 
I speak no Latin. I cannot diagram a sentence, but my fifth grader can. <laughs> By the way, when you get introduced to classical Christian education, you'll realize how little you actually know. Okay. It's a fact. Now, Pete. Look, I'll keep going, but yes. All right. We're going to get back to education in but a minute. But Our you paideia, said that, yeah. and we're going to get to paideia. But when you said that in the book, somebody taught you to write. Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, what was the teacher's I, name? I write, I have no idea. I write, <laughs> I write like I speak. So I, the, only, the only way I learned how to write, honestly, is by, okay, I, I feel like I know how I want to say it, so I'm going to write it how I want to say it. And then over time, people taught me how to remove words that were redundant and not talk in the passive tense. But I actually, I'm not trying to best for, I sound like Joe Biden. Not joking around here, folks. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I don't know what it means to conjugate a verb. I mean, I don't, I, I, I'm, maybe I received phonics. Do you remember hooked, hooked on phonics worked for me? <laughs> Do you remember that? We, we used to make fun of it, right? In high school, we were, oh, look at that kid, hooked on phonics worked for him, you know? Do you know why? Because they removed phonics from education with an entirely new whole word method of reading, which led to disastrous reading results. So now that's why Johnny can't read. Well, I didn't know that I didn't get phonics. So now I'm reading to my kindergartner two days ago, and she's, she's explaining to me, you know, <laughs> Q and U, the married couple, and all the, you know what I mean? Like, and, and she's sounding out words. And, all, and, I, and I asked my parents, like, no, you, we didn't do that. That's not how you learned how to read, because that wasn't part of the curriculum at the time. <laughs> And so there, there's, when you dig down, so I, I don't mean to dismiss that. Sure, I had, but I got into college and I, I'm sure my Princeton professors were like, where did this kid learn how to write a paper? <laughs> it, it was, but I think there's a lot more of that than you think because there's a lot less rigorous instruction than you think. And so actually season two of The Miseducation of America, which is the Fox Nation series that the book is premised on, which just came out, we have a whole episode on standards called The Dumbing Down of America. And they in, intentionally have reduced standards so that the kids who are less educated can still be perceived to be as educated, but they really aren't as educated. And we don't know we aren't as educated, but because we're never exposed to the alternative of it. And when you dumb it down, you make citizens that are easier to control. And it's more difficult to identify fallacies and lies and arguments, or to make your own logical argument. So I don't know who, who taught me how to write. Who taught you to be curious? Well, I did have some good professors who taught me. Like, uh, there's a wonderful young lady whose mother I met here, and uh, who let me you? know, what's her name? Chloe Chan whose mother's here, there we go, right there, and her daughter's going to Princeton, and she's going to uh, ROTC there, congratulations, you should be so proud, she wrote me a, a great note. It's the only Ivy League school I would recommend anybody should go to. And I say that because I returned my degree to Harvard live on television. I got a graduate degree there, and I broke open my frame, and I crossed out Harvard University, and I wrote Critical Theory University, and I wrote Return to Sender on the degree, and I folded it up, and I mailed it to him, live on television. And not as a stunt, honestly not as a stunt, but because we have to stop holding up these so-called elite institutions as the gatekeepers of credibility. I don't want to be seen as an expert or smart or good because I went to Harvard. If anything, my default is, if you went to Harvard, you probably think men can get pregnant. 
and therefore you're not allowed to be an expert. It's po they're poisoning the minds of the so-called elite future classes and, and creating precisely the kind of culture we do not want, so let's stop elevating them. Now, Princeton, as a counterexample, still lunatic land on a lot of levels. But Robbie George is a professor at Princeton who's a constitutional law professor. And what he's done is what I think graduates of classical Christian schools are going to be able to do in universities and institutions for decades to come, and it's going to change those institutions. He created the James Madison Institute for American Ideals and Institutions. I was a sophomore when he, when he started it, and he was a mentor of mine. And it simply was premised on, let's like study American founding documents and the founding fathers and what makes America special and the Constitution and the Declaration and the Federalist Papers. And let's invite professors with different views into Princeton. Over time, I interviewed him two years ago for Fox and Friends. There are 25 open conservative Christian professors at Princeton University, which is a small number compared to the, but the difference that core makes in changing the discussion and the dialogue on campus on who gets invited and whether conservatives are welcomed and whether Christians have a part of that conversation is a huge difference. Um, it, it's, so there, there is hope, and, but you can't be salt and light your daughter probably would not be prepared to be salt and light at Princeton had she received a run-of-the-mill, I call it a survivor education. I'm a survivor of public education. I stumbled my way through 35 years of my life, making wreckage of a lot of my life. Um, and when I step back from it, I don't blame my parents at all. But you talked about it at the beginning, Robbie. It was because there, I came out of high school with a Christian veneer, but a secular core. Because I was living in alternate, in different worlds. I was living in a Christian home with a church that was not connected to the school and not in the community, and then a school that was totally disconnected from all of that. So I lived in all of these worlds, and if I look at the stimuli I actually responded to, it was the secular progressive education that I received and all the bells and whistles that came with it. And so when I was, forced to sort of live out and defend my faith and, and my politics or my philosophy. I gave on a lot of things and then stood on others and it was inconsistent. Classical Christian, I, what I hope and pray for is for my kids is to give them an opportunity to, to avoid about 20 years of wreckage so that they're prepared, they're not coming out of high school and college as survivors, they're coming out thriving and prepared to be warriors for the kingdom and for this country. Uh, which is what we need right now if we're, we're going to take it back. All right, let's move to this. All right, so let's look at the idea of paideia, and I'm going to read something from the book. Americans were proud to see the images of Afghans, including women, holding up their purple stained fingers as they went to the polls to elect their new government. Democracy had arrived in Afghanistan. Girls were going to school, women were working in government jobs, and religious fanatics were re relegated to the hinterlands of the country. Except, as I saw firsthand in 2011, and the world saw 10 years later in the summer of 2021, it was all a mirage. None of it was real. It was a house of cards destined to collapse. Why, Pete? Yeah, we use that comparison of paideia across cultures, because we talk about the American paideia, but you, 
Every culture has a paideia. The Afghans have a paideia. It is the enculturation or education of your youth. It's the value of the good life imprinted on the hearts and souls of our youngest kids. More or less, most of your formation of a child happens before the age of 12 or 13. What they believe, how they speak, what they value, the traditions they want to honor reflexively. Which is why, by the way, the progressives target that so aggressively, because if they can get kids at seven and eight saying gender is a social construct and I'm not a boy or a girl, that becomes the water in which they swim, and it becomes very difficult to change that view of the world later on. So the Afghans had a paideia. Now, it's not my cup of tea, but we came in and tried to imprint something else on top of it, uh, it that, was, that their paideia effectively rejected. If we wanted to change that paideia, we would have to dive in for 100 years through the educational pipeline and intentionally turn it on its head to create, 100 years later, a generation of kids who saw the world completely differently. That's exactly what the progressives did in America. A hundred years ago, we had what was called a Western Christian paideia, effectively the paideia of our founding. And, and again, paideia has no direct translation, kind of means education of youth or enculturation, passing on of your traditions. Um, and because we've lost Greek and Latin, we've lost a lot of understanding of sophisticated words like that. David reintroduced me to it. But the progressives knew that word, they wrote about it. And they understood it in the context of plasticity of paideia. And that if you can start to educate young people a fundamentally different way, you can change the, their actions they take later on. One of the examples we use is a, a, a suffragist from the 1870s, um, and her name is escaping me right now, but it'll come to me. Um, she was a socialist, and she really wanted to end alcohol consumption and distribution in America. And she started by putting a third grade curriculum in loosely organized schools in the 1870s and 1880s. And it spread. And it, it demonized you know, it, drunkenness and all these other things that exist. What happened 30, 40 years later? Now, we had a constitutional amendment banning the, pro, the, pro, the sale of alcohol. And progressives studied that exercise and said, politics is a futile exercise until you change the minds and the plasticity and the paideia of young kids. And God is our biggest impediment because we're utopians who want to play God. So we need to remove God and replace it with a different paideia. So they did it, and it, we can call it a conspiracy, but it really was a series of people with the same ideology chipping away at the bedrock of Western civilization uh, time after time. We, they didn't know where it was going to end, but they knew where it wouldn't end. And it wouldn't end with Christ at the center and with the values of 1776 being celebrated. And this is where a, a theory like critical theory arrives on the scene. Critical theory was started at the, Cran uh, the Frankfurt School in Germany in the 1930s. And it was, it, Hitler effectively kicked, they fled Hitler and landed at, in New York City at Columbia University. They were Marxists, they were atheists. Ironically, our boys were in Normandy to take out Hitler and the Marxists were fleeing and taking refuge at our universities. One of the ironies of history. Ironically as well, or quite intentionally, what was Columbia University in the 1930s and 40s? The preeminent teacher's college in America. So Max Horkheimer and Herbert Mikusa and others land there with their critical, and critical theory is, in short, is meant to deconstruct Western civilization. Chip away at everything we believe to be good and right and true, flip it on its head and destroy it. Uh, by challenging every core assumption that we have from, you know, 
class warfare to race warfare to sex and, and gender. So it arrives on the scene, they start pushing it out to teachers and other teachers' colleges, and that's, it took 70, 80 years, but here we are with critical race theory, the dominant perspective of an entire political party and now an entire uh, uh, educational establishment. Same with critical gender theory which is the nexus for sex ed, gender theory, and everything that's in season two of the miseducation of America as well. But they, they went to work. And what was a Western Christian paideia, as we describe in the book, became in the 60s-ish an American progressive paideia. Meaning, we were celebrating the flag, we were celebrating nationalism, we were celebrating a pledge. By the way, the original Pledge of Allegiance before Eisenhower was written by a socialist named Francis Bellamy and it did not include under God. Eisenhower added under God in the, in, the, in the 50s when we were fighting the godless communists. It was meant to be a pledge to distract away from God and to the flag. Now, you can still revere the flag in the pledge today, and I do, but the progressives used it as a tool to get closer to control. That's why they're happy to discard it now. It was never about the flag. It was never about the, the principles of 1776. So they shifted to an American progressive paideia. And David and I, our, our theory is that today we're living, living effectively in a, in a culturally Marxist paideia. That they've been so effective that it is the cultural Marxists who are completely in control of the educational pipeline, and we can break that down, which is why I think we need to break down this. There's a notion still out there, and I know a lot of, most of the audience here is familiar with classical Christian, has been here at Cary, or is associated with it. But there's a notion, this idea that, you know, I can't stand Congress. They're a bunch of crooks. But I really like my congressman. He's a nice guy. The same thing happens with public education or government-funded schools. That public school system is all messed up, but my principal, he's a good guy. And I know some teachers at the school, and they're doing their best. And I'm here to disavow you of that notion across the spectrum. Whether you move to a zip code or an area code or a certain conservative community, un unfortunately, with very few exceptions, our educational pipeline through the capture of Paideia has created a, a federalized pipeline completely controlled by the left meant to control the minds of your kids. And that's why we argue a radical reorientation of your life um, over around the education of your kids. Because you can control where you go to church, you can control what you do around the dinner table and how you introduce them to a Lord and Savior, but it will and can be all undone by people with an exact opposite worldview of yours, who were, again, this is not an accident. They knew the youngest minds, the paideia, was the prize. And so they aimed for that from the beginning. Academic concepts that they say are gonna stay in academia like critical race theory. By the way, it was supposed to be economic theory. That's what the Marxists originally thought would work, class warfare. But then they looked at our past and said, no, 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 race is their real Achilles heel. So we're gonna play into their racial past and amplify race hatred in an attempt to destroy and destabilize that country. Which is why you would dare tell a fourth grader that they're inherently an oppressor because they're white or inherently a victim because they're black. I can't think of anything more devastating and racist that you could tell somebody if you meant to divide a society and take it backwards. Uh, and that's precisely what is in Far too, if you hear the word diversity, equity, inclusion, you're right over the target. 
because that's just Marxist code for critical race theory. Uh, and it, and it, it's not just schools, of course. It's in our military and everywhere else right now. All right. So we have a Marxist uh, paideia. Uh, we have the Taliban paideia. <laughs> and then uh, the WCP. Their, your army is coming out with the, uh, the, all the initials in yes. the, the WCP. Yes. But what is the WCP? I mean, the Western Christian paideia. So the West is effectively, you know, Athens and Rome and the Western tradition uh, of, of free thinking, the great books, Latin and Greek, and engaging with the stories, the myths, the history of Western culture, uh, which was beautifully synthesized with Jerusalem, uh, with, with the, the, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the apostles who spread that and merged that, and eventually the Roman Empire becomes the Holy Roman Empire in the West. Again, none of this is a perfect history, but who we are today was built on a, a, a story that started 2,000 years ago, even before that, but with Christ 2,000 years ago, through Europe, through the Middle Ages, through the Crusades. I mean, we, schools don't even teach the, the Crusades, by the way. We wouldn't be here if, without the Crusades. And I'm not saying, I'm not making a value positive or negative on that. It's just a fact. It's a history. It's worth looking at. Europe and how it developed, the churches in Europe, how the church, you know, Martin Luther, they don't study Martin Luther. All of these things are a part of what the Western Christian paideia represents. And it, it reached, you could say, not perfectly, David's very good about, about uh, nuancing this in the book, but at the founding of our country, with a generation who had been, ver who read Greek and Latin fluently, who engaged with all the big ideas and all the, the great books to include the ones that worked and didn't work. They looked at the failures of kings and monarchies. Uh, they understood the flaws of human nature, our sinful nature, that we were inclined toward power and power consolidation. And if you were gonna create a republic, of, by, and for the people, we the people, you had to dissipate that power with different branches of government, an electoral college. It's not a pure democracy because democracy ends up being the tyranny of the majority. All this, they understood all these ideas and distilled them into brilliant documents in 1776, then fought a war over them, and then enshrined them in a constitution with a Bill of Rights that we still depend on to this day. If we didn't have an enumerated Bill of Rights, between the First and the Second Amendment, we'd probably already be toast. And that, is, that is the product of free thinkers who understand the connection between Christ uh, and reason, between Jerusalem and Athens and Rome, and stand on the shoulders of that history. Not because they believed everything in the past was good, but because we're all part of the same human story. So if you're studying the Western Christian paideia, you're a part of that same conversation. You understand who Aaron and Moses and Rebecca and you know, Jesus and the apostles and uh, Zacchaeus and uh, every, every part of the story. I, I didn't even read the Iliad and the Aeneid because it wasn't in my curriculum. I'm reading it now. We never stop learning when you start to realize what you haven't learned. But kids at classical Christian school are introduced in a faithful, proper way to the Western Christian paideia in the way that our founders were introduced. Not by whitewashing history. You still talk about the sins of history, the mistakes, the flaws, both of philosophies and of people. Every single one of us is flawed and made mistakes and should be judged in their time based on how they conducted themselves. 
But what I love is, is, is the, the way in which the Western Christian, day, Christian Pi Day draws on history. And what classical Christian does is it teaches history in phases. Similar histories of the Western Christian tradition, just at different age-appropriate levels. So by the time you're in high school or in the rhetoric school, you're engaging with the Greeks at a level that already has a baseline of understanding because you've been taught the basics, and now you can go to the ne next level of synthesizing and understanding all of that. Now, I talk about that as if I know it, but I don't. But my kids are gonna know it. My kids already speak and understand Latin and where root words come from because of that. That's gonna prepare them to be writers and thinkers and speakers in a way that I will try my best to catch up, but I'm always gonna play catch up. That's the Western Christian paideia that progressives ran headlong into uh, more or less in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And they knew the schoolroom was the place to do it. Now the church then abdicated its responsibility as well, effectively saying we're not gonna be involved in education anymore because it's become a public function. And so that's where the idea of Sunday school came from. Churches used to be the hub of education, then the state became the hub of education, and then churches said we'll just do a little bit of, we'll sprinkle a little Jesus on on Sunday. Uh, it turns out that doesn't work so well. I mean, some institutions like the Catholic Church did a better job than others in preserving an educational system for many, many years, even though I think that's failing uh, in significant ways at this point compared to a classical Christian education. So there's a lot to the story, but paideia is this hidden word we rediscover. Uh, and our editor said, what are you doing talking about this paideia thing? No one knows what it means. <laughs> and that's, I think, what we try to do in the book, too, is respect the audience. You know, don't dumb down the topic. If you're interested in it, you're gonna learn the history of our educational system and how they targeted it, and I hope be prepared uh, to advocate for it. So, your Harvard dissertation on STEM. Oh, I wanna talk about that so bad. Foolishness, you say? Yes. All right, this is the battle I fight every day, Pete. Help me win this battle. There's a push for our school to become a STEM school. What do I say? <laughs> and if they had your dissertation, I don't want them to use it against me, but... Uh... They can use it against me if you want. So there's nothing wrong with science, technology, engineering, and math. And there's no doubt we live in a world that's gonna need a lot of those skill sets as much as anything else. And that there's lucrative careers to be had in those skill sets. No one's dismissing that or thinking you shouldn't teach that or engage with that or even emphasize that. There's no problem with that. Um, but what the progressives understood for quite some time is that the function of education was meant to create a pipeline of vocation. See, they didn't want free thinkers. They didn't want wise welders. They just wanted you, based on what I think you're capable of, you go learn a skill, and then you be, you, we plug you in where we want to plug you in. In my mind, STEM is just the modern manifestation of that directive, which is effective. We've decided technology, science, and engineering is math is the future, and therefore fast track your kids on a specific skill so that they can be a more useful worker for us in the future. And in the minds of progressives, they get to skip over all the steps of virtue formation and wisdom formation and critical thinking and engaging with big ideas. See, I think, Robbie, you would say we can do both because we can. And if we believe that we're raising, we want to raise Christ-centered, good citizens and free thinkers, the one step you can't skip is the classical Christian portion of it to provide the foundation for that. 
And there are other things on top of that that will quickly, I think we also, and David knows a lot more about this than I do as far as the research, but the delta between success in STEM versus a STEM focus now versus a going into STEM later is a very small delta. Uh, there's only so much you can do in a junior high and high school setting to accelerate someone that's gonna shoot them past somebody who's decided in a graduate level or in, in an undergraduate to focus on science, technology, engineering, and math. But they want you fast-tracked on that because that's the new shiny object that education is focused on. It's just like Common Core, social-emotional learning. There's always a new fad that the educators tell us we need to focus on that's gonna fix all our problems and every fad moves us over here away from the stuff that worked, that forms the soul and core of our kids. The basic, and it really does come down to the basic reading, writing, and arithmetic, and critical thinking that kids are being robbed of in the vast majority of our schools in America today. So yes, when I was at Harvard Kennedy School, like a good policy graduate, I wrote my thesis on STEM schools in Minnesota. I mean, because that was the groupthink of the place, and I was, because I thought, okay, that, I was passionate about education. I always have been. My, my mom was, you'll read about her in the book, she's passionate about it and helping us through it. My dad was an educator. I've always believed that if you want equal opportunity in a society, in a free society, you can't choose where people, what they're born into, who their parents are. You can't choose you know, a lot of things about how you were born and where you were born. But if you give a child an education, you give them a ladder and an opportunity up and out to succeed. It is the closest thing to equal opportunity that a free society can provide. It's the opportunity for someone through merit to educate themselves and move forward. So I've always believed in it. It's the opposite of equity, which equity is, again, they always change the words to make it sound like something you like, but it's actually the exact opposite. Equity is, well, the people on top need to come down and we're gonna pretend like everybody in the bottom and then everybody's gonna be the same and it's, it's effectively Marxism and communism just papered over as equity. Equality is we treat people equally, but we can't guarantee the same outcomes for everybody, but we give people an equal shot at that. And so I've been drawn toward education that way, and I was you know, seduced by the idea that STEM is the future, and I talked to some Republicans and Democrats in Minnesota, and I put together a white paper, and we were gonna do this STEM, I hope it's buried in the Kennedy School <laughs> Library. Don't go look at it. But I say that because I'm like so many of you as parents or grandparents. We were totally blind to this. And it's not because we're bad people, and it's not because we're not paying attention. And, it, and certainly you want the best for your kids and your grandkids, and so do I. But I know that once I see it, I can't unsee it. I can't unsee both what's being done to them, and I can't unsee the opportunity that my kids are missing by not getting a classical Christian education. So as we were doing this research, I mean, I was reading and looking at stuff, and I was calling my wife, I'm like, babe, we gotta get out of here. <laughs> We gotta get out. They have to get in this school like right now. And they've, they've been in a classical Christian school for the better part of a year and it is, it is light bulbs going off in the minds of our sixth grade, fourth grader, second grader, and kindergarten uh, in, in the school in Tennessee. And I want it for every possible kid out there. So I'm not here to disparage, even though I use that voice, STEM education, it's important but I think it oftentimes bypasses the formation and foundation that kids deserve. All right, two final questions. So you're saying these four virtues, reason, uh, reason and, or four habits, reason and virtue, wonder and beauty, 
If we teach our kids those four habits or skills, they're, they're ready to take on the world. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's what we argue in the book. Yeah. And, and by the way, I would, I would have you look at this board, Reason, Virtue, Wonder, and Beauty, and walk into m almost any other school in America and find me a school that puts those words in the hall. Can't say beauty anymore. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. It's your truth and my truth. What's beauty? You can't say something's good or not good or beautiful or not beautiful or... No, wonder, wonder's been stripped out of our classroom as we, we put them in a Prussian-style classroom and tell them this is what you read and this is the curriculum and this is how you're going to do it and prepare them for a job. Virtue, you, again, you can't talk of what's virtue. If there's virtue, it's virtue signaling. Uh, and if there's virtue, it's a flag and it has lots of colors on it, not red, white, and blue. And, and reason is simply, I mean, it's been stripped out. Uh, even the SAT, which was designed as a reasoning test, has been deemed racist by the college board because certain groups don't uh, have scores equal with other groups. And as a result, rather than fixing the inequities in education for those groups, you declare the test racist, strip reasoning out of it, combine it to the common core so that teachers can do more regimented training to the test so that those kids can maybe do better on the now modified SIT, SAT and then maybe get into schools that they're not prepared to succeed in because they were never taught reasoning. If you, if you can teach these things, I mean, I, I tell you this, if you go into a classical Christian school, one of the first places you should go is to the art department. And I, I've never been good at art. I've never really appreciated art. I mean, I do now, but go to the art department of the 11th and 12th graders. You will be blown away by what these average, you know your kids, pretty average. I know mine. <laughs> what these average kids are capable of creating when, when, when they're told your art is a reflection of God's beauty and God's creation. And this is a trained skill that you can learn to glorify God. And from the age of second grade to third grade to fourth grade, we're going to train you and teach you and mold you to create beautiful art. And then we're going to tell you if your art is beautiful or if it's ugly. And we're going to help you understand those differences. And you look at, and you're blown away. And I remember, I think I cut out construction paper for art in 11th grade. I got, we didn't do art. And I did choir, but I was seen as very uncool for doing so. I mean, the, the, the things that are beautiful, the things that sound beautiful and look beautiful, and we should appreciate that Christendom created for generations have been completely decimated and ignored. And so we think about Plato and Aristotle and Greek and Latin, but it's, it's the things that you wonder about and the beauty that you, I'll, I'll never forget the first time my wife worked in, walked into the uh, school that our kids now go to in Tennessee. She gripped my arm. It was like the first time she walked into a Baptist church. Uh, and as a Baptist boy, I loved it. But she gripped my arm. She, she was like, Pete, where are the primary colors? Where's all the splashy slogans and all the... Because in the schools that we went to, there were lots of primary colors and yoga balls and relaxation mats and all the gimmicks and the bells and the whistles for the kids with the this and the that and the this. And this school, and she was mortified. 
And then we came back a couple of months later when school was in session, and she made her halfway down the hallway and was in tears. Because you realize the joy and the wonder and the beauty is not on the wall. It's what's being taught in the classroom. And then the kids are challenged and engaged with these big ideas, and they're challenged to do well, and they're challenged to do beautiful things and to glorify God with their work, and they come alive. And so it's the opposite of other schools that put the shiny object on the walls, but what's inside is effectively dead. And so David was the mentor that sort of pointed us in those directions. But if schools are focused on those, and then being faithful uh, to their mission to, to form uh, young students for Christ, then you're doing everything I think you can for those kids. All right, last question. So you're right, we can do both. We can teach uh, habits. We can teach uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And we can teach math and science. And uh, our students are excelling. And they're getting the attention of the world. Our top students, I would say, I would take on... Our acceptance rate at UNC, which is, is tough to get into, I would put it up against any other school in North Carolina. Uh, we're getting students into Duke. Uh, we have had students go to West Point, Annapolis. Uh, we've been sent out to the Air Force Academy, the Coast Guard Academy. It, they're, they're going everywhere. We have a student right now at the University of Pennsylvania undergrad. We have a student at University of Pennsylvania uh, getting her graduate degree there. We have two students that went to uh, Princeton last year. We have one going next year. So our best academic students, are the doors are being opened for them everywhere, Pete. Wherever they want to go, our best academic students can go. Should they go, and what, what should they do with those degrees? I think only you as parents, only, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> You sent your Harvard degree back. I know. Don't go to Harvard. Uh, I know what I'm going to tell my kids. Uh, well, for, let me step back first. Only you know your kids and your grandkids. Only you know if they're prepared to be salt and light. Only you know if they're going to swish around and try to survive and be seduced by the enemy in an entirely different worldview. That's what they're going up against in these universities. It is full-on onslaught, complete rejection of more or less everything that you have taught them K through 12. So don't have blinders on, oh, I went to UNC or I went to Duke and I love the basketball team and I know some of the alumni and garbage. Your school and my school. I don't even know why we give to schools. I mean, the only school you should give to is schools like this, 100%. Amen. <laughs> I mean that 100%. Don't give to Alabama, don't give to Georgia, don't give to the University of Minnesota, don't give to any of them. You might as well just send your check to the Marxists because that's exactly where it's going. And so I would think the same way, more or less, about your kid's education. Now, at the same time, as a parent, I'm sitting here going, okay, where do I want to send my kids? I'm currently building a list. The list is very short. <laughs> I don't know what the list is. In fact, I talked to David and, and uh, Gene about this earlier. There is an organization out there working to effectively filter through and accredit or get a sense of the fidelity of higher education so that parents have a better understanding of the wilderness that is that. And there are more options than ever there, too. So if you get informed, there are places other than just Hillsdale and others where you can send your kids where they can continue to be fortified. They're out there, again, more than ever. Uh, but 
and I, I used to make the salt and light argument very uh, adamantly. I don't think you can make it really in any meaningful way in today's high schools and middle schools uh, because most kids are not prepared to do that. And it takes an amount of deprogramming and at home that you shouldn't have to do. Rachel Campos-Duffy, who's my co-host on Fox and Friends, she, I'll never forget when she said when the pro uh, school board protests were happening. She's like, Pete, I, I got n too much to do, too many kids to be spending my night protesting against the school that I want them to educate them. Just stop. And, and I know not everybody can do that. I know that. There's financial constraints. There's geographic constraints. There's parenting constraints. Uh, I, I get it. So not everybody can make that immediate choice. But if you can, make it. And so if you're, if you're a parent, just be very judicious about it. And I, I hope that the gatekeeper or the status that we hold for these elite institutions will continue to diminish and diminish rapidly and that they'll be exposed for who they are. If you want to cheer for the football team, great. But other than that, there's almost no worth to any of these places. They are poisoning the minds of kids. And if you want to send your kids to go drink alcohol somewhere, just give them a beer tab at the local <laughs> bar. They'll probably get more wisdom there than they will from the political science department. Uh, so I, I just think the same intention, it can't just be you're 18, go make a choice. Now they will go make a choice, and my kids are gonna go make a choice too. But if I had a dollar for every parent that I met at a diner or across the country who came up to me and said, I sent a Christian patriot to college, and they came back a Bernie supporter that I don't re recognize, I would be a very rich man. And I would posit to you, and this is not to indict anybody here, I really, really mean that, because we're all learning this in real time, that's a, that's a failure. Because I think, I know I have one charge in my life and in my lifetime. It's to try to pass to my kids, I'm ashes and dust, I'm a blink in the Lord's eyes, and all we leave is the legacy of our kids and our families. And if I can pass that to them, it's the most important thing I can do. Certainly not wealth, certainly not status, certainly not homes, none of that matters. It's who are they and what do they believe and what will they pass to their kids and their, their grandkids. And I think we've outsourced that based on warm glows we had about institutions that we have to completely get rid of. Know your kids. I'm gonna say, hey kids, you wanna go to these five schools? You'll go, I'll help you pay for it. You wanna go to the other ones? Good luck. I'm not paying for that. And if you wanna join the military, Let's see how woke that is in five years. <laughs> uh, you know, so it, it's, it's, a, it's a, but I'll leave you with, it, with this piece of encouragement. It's never been the 50% that changed history. It's always been the one or two or 3%. And that's why what we label this movement as in the book is an, an educational insurgency. And I say that as I was a senior counterinsurgency instructor in Afghanistan. So my job is to train all the units coming in about what the Taliban was doing and how we were supposed to counter it. What their latest tactics were, their strategy was, what phase they were doing, how they were manipulating the population, all of those things. Insurgency is the form of warfare of the weak against the strong, of the small against the big, of the nimble against the immovable object. That's who all of you are right now, that's who we are. We're in phase one of an educational insurgency. 
that if we gather strength, if we build the networks, if we start more schools, if we spend our money and our time to build those institutions, that the graduates of these schools go on to create teachers' colleges for classical Christian schools or create other schools, uh, that then next generations, you start to build on the one, the two, the three percent, because the world will be hostile to the graduates of this place in one form or another. Our job is not to bend to that hostility, but instead build the kingdom here and, and build our families and our communities. That's what we can affect. Um, and you use college and look at college as part of that pathway, not just the good luck, because four years later, we all might regret what that good luck looks like. Uh, and now we're back at square one. Pete, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. So I don't, so I don't get in trouble. I have to say, my mom said to say hi. So hi, hi from Deb. Now this is going to be recorded. I'm sending it to her. She's going to be so proud. Awesome. Uh, if hi you, Deb. She loves watching uh, every weekend. And if you ever need some notes, okay. on, uh, Deb can send you some ideas. I sure. I like that. <laughs> Send her to the next diner. We'll put okay. Oh yes, uh, she'll be there. Uh, but uh, we are excited to have you here, and I hope you all have enjoyed tonight. Uh, Pete's going to be over here at the table signing some books, and we'll be selling you a book if you didn't bring one uh, so that you can purchase one. If you have been moved and you're thinking, hey, I want to be a part of the classical school movement, and you live here in Cary or you don't live here in Cary, uh, I would love to talk to you. This movement is getting ready to explode. Uh, why? Because we have people telling our story and helping us tell our story that are really good at telling stories. Two, because it's working. And, and three, I, I would say it's about to explode because I really think God is blessing this movement. I think he's at work in the middle of it. And he's doing something magnificent. I've, again, I've been watching this movement for 30 years. And its growth has nothing to do with us who have been a part of it. We, and I, and I don't say this um, just to self-deprecate, we had no idea what we were doing. But God blessed it anyway. And I believe that this movement is just exactly what our country needs. It's exactly what our children need. If you want help starting a school, we would love to help you do that. If you want us to point you toward a school that maybe is in your area or closer to you, we'd love to help you to do that. If you'd like to come and apply at our school, we would love for you to apply. Come get a tour, get on the waiting list, and, and Lord willing, you'll get in. Because we're so excited. God is blessing us. I mean, you know, we, we don't have many openings for next year. This school, God is blessing it. And it is growing. And this movement, he is blessing it. And it is a great honor to be a part of it. And I want to thank you for your curiosity about it and for coming tonight. Let me close this in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for Pete, and Lord, we pray for him. We pray that you'll give him wisdom. Pray that you'll give him grace. Uh, pray that you will protect him as he moves forward in all of his travels. And Lord, we pray that you'll protect his family as they have now taken up a new home and a new city and uh, as they adventure into this classical school uh, world with their children. And Lord, we thank you for all the children who are in this movement. We thank you for the teachers who are a part of it. 
Uh, Lord, we thank you for how you are connecting teachers and students, and they are developing uh, reason and virtue. They're developing wonder, and they're developing a sense of beauty. And Lord, may, by your grace, and by combining these with a love for Christ, may, Lord, may we see your kingdom come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. We'll let you head on over there. If you would like uh, to get your book signed or something signed, uh, come on over to the table. Line up starting right here on the end. We'll do it. Hey, Robbie, thank you. Appreciate it.